0: 620
1: in Portland. Radio. The with the happy FBI officials tonight are requesting motorists to report any hitchhikers or other pedestrians on Northwest roadways as the search broadens for a man who skyjacked a Northwest Airlines jetliner and bailed out somewhere between Seattle and Reno. The Skyjacker, dressed in a dark business suit and raincoat, is considered armed and dangerous. Authorities caution you not to pick up strangers, but to report pedestrians to your local police, sheriff, state patrol, or the FBI. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today, we conclude our discussion of the only unsolved skyjacking in U.S. history. This podcast is brought to you by Portland Luggage, historian, and too big for the overhead compartment, Doug Cank Crispin. If I'm jumping
2: out of a plane at 10,000 feet with $200,000 in 20s, I wanna make sure my impedimenta is top notch. Portland Luggage has everything you could possibly want for your next voyage. Since 1916, this local business has been outfitting travelers, adventurers, and business folk for all their luggage needs. And yes, they even sell black attache cases. So the next time you need some baggage to ensure the job is done right, drop on in on Portland Luggage at 440 Southwest 4th in Portland or at 11645 Southwest Beaverton Hillsdale. Your journey begins at Portland Luggage.
1: Our knowledge of the man known as Dan Cooper is limited to just a few hours. We have no idea where he came from or where he went. It's like a bad, avant-garde, artsy-fartsy film with incredibly poor character development. Dan Cooper emerges on November 24, 1971 at PDX like a specter from the mist. In the end, he is engulfed by that same murky realm when he leaps from the aft stairs of the
0: 727.
1: Just a few hours after the dramatic skyjacking, tribulations developed in the investigation of this case. Even something as basic as a suspect's description is layered with complexity and confusion. The D.B. Cooper composite drawings are problematic. The reality is there are three different sketches of the hijacker, a set of compromises based on different passengers and crew members conflicting descriptions. Save a few similar characteristics, the sketches, like the Unabomber's depiction Decades Distant, could be almost any Caucasian man. In one drawing, the perpetrator even resembles Bob Hope. Perhaps the most settled-upon description of the hijacker, or at least the most prosaic, can be found in the grand jury indictment of John Doe, also known as Dan Cooper, filed in 1976. It reads, A male Caucasian, mid-forties, height 5'10 to 6 feet, weight, 170 to 85 pounds, physical build, average to well-built, complexion olive, medium smooth, hair dark brown or black, parted on left, combed back of greasy appearance, sideburns below ear level, eyes brown or dark, voice low without particular accent, using an intelligent vocabulary, and a heavy smoker of cigarettes. In fact, Dan Cooper smoked so much that his fingertips were reportedly stained from the nicotine. So, what do we know about D.B. Cooper? What background did Cooper possess? Many feel he was a complete dumbass, an incompetent, a buffoon who was surely shredded the moment he hit the 200-mile-per-hour winds. Some have argued that at that speed, the slipstream would have literally blown Cooper's loafers right off his feet. But other indications suggest a contradictory story to dummy buffoon Cooper. At one point, after the plane left Seattle, stewardess Tina Mucklow handed the hijacker printed instructions on how to operate a parachute, to which Cooper responded, I don't need that. Was Cooper an accomplished parachutist? Boeing 727 had been flown in Cooper's precise pattern previously. In operations not publicly known at the time, in Vietnam and Laos, CIA-contracted Air America flights flew with the stairs open as heavy boxes of supplies and even parachuting agents were thrown out of the planes to isolated forces in the jungle. Had the man known as Dan Cooper been involved in these secret elite operations during the Vietnam War? Or had he even been some smiling Special Forces CIA super agent that had previously parachuted from the rear of a 727 into a thick jungle drop zone in sweltering Southeast Asia, saving the United States from the menace of communism and dispensing gigantic chocolate bars to the local Hmong children? Cooper was obviously familiar with 727s, and had targeted that specific model for his crime. At the ticket counter, Cooper paid for the fare to Seattle with a $20 bill and promptly asked the ticket agent, That's, a uh, 727, isn't it? But how deep was his knowledge of the specifics of the airplane? Once Cooper was on the plane, before his takeoff from Seattle to supposedly Mexico City, Cooper needed stewardess Tina Mucklow to show him how to work the mechanism to lower the aft stairs. And, of course, who wouldn't wonder if Cooper could have survived the dramatic dive? Historian Doug Cainte Crispin. Well, the answer is far
2: from elementary, and the conclusion depends on who you ask. Bill Whitney, a Seattle skydiver who was actually an FBI suspect in the crime for a few hours, was convinced that Cooper got away. Whitney claimed the jump was not difficult, and that even he could have done it. But of course, much of this depends on Cooper's parachute. We asked Skyjack author Jeffrey Gray to tell us a bit about this, as he's emerged on the interwebs as someone who really knows a shit ton about parachutes.
0: The parachutes that the FBI brought on board for him were actually emergency chutes that a local pilot had had recently made and there are two very different chutes. one of them was a pioneer from the late late 1950s and this parachute was designed for recreational jumpers it was padded it was the canopy's shape itself was rectangular you could steer it and um the other chute was a totally different one this was a very rugged primitive military chute. the nb6 the navy back six jump experience and the, the, the straps there was no padding. People said that sometimes the impact when you pulled the ripcord was so fierce that the, the straps themselves cut into skin and the shape of the canopy was conical, 28 feet and really what that meant was that Cooper couldn't really steer the shoe through the night sky. He couldn't really tell where he was going. It would be very difficult. He could kind of push it in one direction but couldn't really fly it through the night sky. And, you know, originally FBI investigators thought that a chute like that would be the worst kind of chute to jump in under those conditions. But when I spoke with parachute experts, the main thinking behind the, the military shoot is that actually it would be the right chute to jump with because the plane was moving very fast and the chute handled better at, different, at higher velocity. And also it also was better to jump into trees because it slowed you down more. The other shoe was actually, uh, your, your speed was faster. So if you wanted to jump into trees, which presumably Cooper did, this would have been the right one to do. So obviously he knew about parachutes probably
1: a lot more than I did. So what happened to Dan Cooper? It seems as if everyone breathing has a theory. We asked that question to several of our regular ass kickers and the conjecture was wide ranging.
2: D.B. Cooper be falling from the plane, get hung up in a tree, break to his neck. Some kind hunter come by, find D.B. Cooper hanging up in there, bury his body, and kept the money for himself. What do you think happened to D.B. Cooper?
1: I think D.B. Cooper landed in those mountains and got gang raped by a bunch of Sasquatches for months. Well, the FBI did find a pile of clothes determined to be D.B. Coopers in the state forest in Washington and a trail of blood leading to a deep cave. However, the blood was determined not to be human blood, but not of any animal known to us. It was closest to uh, wolf, uh, wolf blood and human blood, but uh, of neither. And residents in the area continued for years to hear deep screams and howls from the cave, but no one has ever determined what those howls were. And so, I think D.B. Cooper went on to
2: live in the deep cave and turned into a werewolf. What happened to D.B. Cooper?
1: Well, I believe he uh, jumped out of that plane and was swallowed by Oregon's version of the Loch Ness Monster, except ours is a giant salmon, of course, and I don't know if anybody knows this, but when you... When a giant salmon eats a lot of money, it's just like when diamonds come from coal. The salmon digested the money and it shot out a bunch of diamonds. And so there are diamonds and D.B. Cooper bones at the bottom of the Columbia. Finally, future historian Max Kank Crispin. What happened to D.B. Cooper? D.B. Cooper jumped out of the plane, his parachute, color tree, black bear, came along, ate him and the money. And surely the Federal Bureau of Investigation must have a supposition, a working theory of Dan Cooper's fate. Once again, Ein Dietrich of the FBI.
2: What is the FBI's official hypothesis of what happened to Dan Cooper?
3: Well, Doug, we follow facts and we don't make assumptions or draw conclusions. So case agents present and past have, of course, had their own informal theories, um, such as if the hijacker could or couldn't have survived the jump. But for our investigators, um, they're certain not to let their personal viewpoints get in the way of having evidence speak for itself. So we don't have any official conclusions.
1: But whether Cooper's loafers gently touch down or his corpse came thundering through the treetops, there was some conclusion to his descent. Where did Cooper land? One lingering location of a possible landing site has always been Merwin Lake. Eyewitnesses reported seeing a large white object, possibly a parachute canopy, floating in the lake on that 1971 Thanksgiving Day. By the time the authorities arrived at the scene, the object Had disappeared but this tantalizing possibility has always intrigued Cooper sleuths over the years another captivating story comes from several residents near Ariel Washington who reported a low-flying small plane taking off and landing a little after 8 p.m. on the night of the hijacking it struck the locals as odd for one They usually didn't have too many planes flying at night in the area. And two, the raging storm was so powerful, it would seem prohibitive and perilous to the particular plane. And to sweeten the pot for you conspiracy theorists out there, the night before the hijacking, a report came of a small plane landing and meeting with a car at an abandoned airfield in the same area. Perhaps a possible... Rendezvous rehearsal for an emergency extraction? Tin foil hat time, dear ass kicker!
2: The authorities conducted numerous searches over the years in the area that they determined most likely to have been Cooper's drop zone. The explorations seemed exhaustive and involved local and federal law enforcement officials. U.S. Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, and even aviation assets, which according to author Jeffrey Gray, included the super top-secret Blackbird spy plane, the SR-71. And nothing was found. No body. No parachute. No spray of $20 bills dispersed by 200-mile-an-hour winds. In fact, the search was so meticulous that it even turned up two bodies the authorities weren't looking for a raped, murdered woman at the bottom of a cistern, and an injured hunter that died in the woods. Is it not reasonable to assume had the hijacker perished in the jump, his body would have been found too?
1: Cooper Sleuth and attorney Galen Cook thinks that the hijacker may have fared much better than the naysayers would propose. Mr. Cook is not the only private citizen to take on this investigation. A whole cottage industry of amateur Cooper sleuths has emerged attempting on their own to tackle this case. Tom K is one of the better known names, and he has spent some time analyzing the only evidence positively linked to the crime. Three bundles totaling $5,880 of Cooper cash found on the Columbia River on a sandbar near Vancouver, Washington, by eight-year-old Brian Ingram in 1980. Kay is looking at the chemical residue left on the bills and seeing what story these trace elements can provide us. So, fellow ass-kicker, looking for a career change in a down economy? Think you have the right stuff to hound out Dan Cooper's fate and bask in fame, wealth, and glory? We asked Galen Cook what characteristics make a good Cooper sleuth. Some people would say extremely obsessive. But why is this case so obsessive? Author Jeffrey Gray
0: We just don't know. Who was this man? You know, where, where did he come from? What what was his family life like? You know, what prompted him to do this? The idea that someone could actually do this, and we still don't know who he is, is maddening, especially in our modern culture where we're so used to getting the answers to any question we have within seconds. So his ability, or just the, the, the ability for us to solve it, almost feels like uh, unfair. It feels like uh, it's annoying. It feels that we've we've developed, I think, a certain sense of entitlement about the truth. We feel like we deserve the right to know all the answers. And the fact that we don't know this one irks us. It titillates us, and it, it wants us to keep looking and looking and looking.
1: So this obsessive drive seems to be fueling the Cooper sleuths. And some think that this ragtag assemble of amateur investigators may really be the ones who can actually solve this case. But
0: we all have this drive to find out if there's any way this case can be solved. Because
2: it doesn't appear at this point that the FBI is going to be able to solve it.
1: We posed the question of ineffectiveness to Ein Dietrich of the FBI.
2: Is the fact that the case is still open almost exactly 40 years to the day The only unsolved skyjacking in the United States history. Is this a case of Dan Cooper 1, FBI 0?
3: I think your listeners wouldn't keep score as you suggest instead appreciate the fact that if D.B. Cooper tried to hijack a plane today instead of 40 years ago, he would be thwarted by increased transportation security and by more vigilant fellow passengers on the airport. We also have more sophisticated capabilities for collecting DNA than we did 40 years ago. So the significant aspect of this being the only unsolved hijacking is the fact that that means everyone since has been thwarted, identified, or prosecuted.
1: But be forewarned, dear ass-kicker. Before you start hiking up the Washugo, trusty, Tektronic spectrum analyzer tucked under your arm and some MREs in your backpack, hell-bent to find a fortune of Cooper Cash, Beware of the dreaded Cooper Curse, Skyjack author Jeffrey Gray explains.
0: coming in to block out the uh, cameras of a spy plane or you know an old warrant for your arrest for you know for a bunch of different things you know bad things have a way of happening and have happened the closer people get to the hijacker and attempt to exploit or profit from his daring do
1: So, where does this leave us? Our resident historian, Doug Kink Crispin.
2: As a historian, I cry out for resolution. I want to know who Cooper was, so we can get to the bottom of this case and stop all this tomfoolery of, my crazy old uncle with the big old sideburns from sisters was D.B. Cooper. I want the hard, indisputable facts to have the info, write the book, collect my royalty check, and bask with my pipe, reflecting on other historical ruminations. But as a fan of a good story, which, when you break it down, is all that historians are really good for. As a fan of a good tale, I've got to say, I like the idea of Cooper getting away with the cash, the pocket full of bennies, and grabbing his bottle of bourbon as he headed out the aft stair with some famous Olympic-grade dive, click those heels like a stripper. Pull the chute, hit the tree line, and walk on eternally into the mist. And they all lived happily ever after. Did Dan Cooper make any mistakes?
3: Yeah, he hijacked an airplane. It's a crime. <laughs> That's a mistake. Oh, man, is a
2: giddy thing. Oh, man, it's a thing. Pretty much that hit the ground.
0: He was going to have to be able to survive that landing.
2: It will not betray you, dismay or enslave you, and will set you free.
0: It's more the suicidal urge, if anything else. And so I think that teetering on the ass stairs, one to 200 miles an hour, the hijacker, and thinking, God, you know, in this life of horror that I've lived, in this life of failure upon failure, finally, I'm able to achieve one fine thing. And then, adios.
2: will not betray dismay or enslave you, it will Sign.
1: Thank you for listening, and be on the lookout for more podcasts from our crew. We hope you'll agree that today's podcast featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast on D.B. Cooper was brought to you by Portland Luggage, written by Doug Cainte-Crispin and Andy Lindberg. We'd also like to extend a kick-ass thank you to Ein Sandalo Dietrich of the FBI, attorney Galen Cook, and Skyjack author Jeffrey Gray for their wonderful interviews.
3: Citations are
1: available on request. out our website at orhistory.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. Or follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is Oregonhistorian at gmail.com. And be sure to join us November 20th, 2011, at 7.30 p.m. for ORhistory.com's D.B. Cooper Night at Mississippi Studios, located at 3939 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland, Oregon. We'll have a rock and history-filled night with the bands Gerard Miles and O. Darling, and historians Katie Barber, Matt Love, Twitter legend at Ancient Portland, and our own resident historian, Doug King Crispin. Truly, kick-ass raffle prices are available. Live music, drinks, a whole bunch of history, and who knows, perhaps Mr. Cooper himself will drop on in. DB Cooper Night is co-sponsored by Dave Knows PDX, Lost Oregon, and Jennifer Wells Design Glass Studio. We hope you'll join us for this kick-ass event Why don't you come on down? Just be careful on the aft stairs. That last step's a doozy. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
2: What happened to D.B. Cooper? I think he jumped into the river or near the river and uh, drowned and his money washed up on shore. I don't know. That's all I got. (laughs) Dave, that's pretty fucking disappointing. (laughs)